Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1925, the 29th season of the VFL. January saw Australia playing England in an Ashes series at the MCG. There was a moment of drama that could have turned to tragedy, but happily just resulted in some comedy. A fire broke out in the stands, and the fire brigade sent two horse-drawn carriages to deal with the danger. Thankfully, the fire in the wooden stand was extinguished before too much damage and no injuries were reported. But some people were so determined to maintain their hard-won seats, they stayed in place despite the fire and the water pouring over them. They were soaked, but they had kept their spot. But I do need to advise that the reports of people staying in their seats only seems to appear in interstate papers. The Melbourne Press reports are much more sedate, confirming that people were evacuated in an orderly manner. Not nearly so much fun. In June 1925, there was a patent granted to a Mr Charles Jenkins in the USA for wireless transmission of images, a prototype for television. In October, John Logie Baird also demonstrated television technology in London, something that will eventually make a big impact on the VFL, but not yet. Though now you know who the Logies were named for. A newspaper article in October suggested that moving pictures could be broadcast by wireless. They identified the opportunity for people all over the world to see horse races, cricket and football matches in less than a second. The first such apparatus was set to be on the market within a year. Seems they were a little optimistic about their timeframes, but they had identified the right markets. Showing how technology was changing lives in 1925, this season would also be the first time that the VFL Grand Final was broadcast on the radio. More about that later. One of the most pivotal decisions in the league's history was announced on Saturday, January 17. A decision that had been under discussion for years was resolved after a final two-hour private meeting on Friday evening. Not one but three new teams were joining the VFL. North Melbourne, Footscray and Hawthorne would leave the VFA. Despite a formal agreement between the VFL and the VFA, that player transfers had to be approved. As one VFA delegate said, they may take the clubs, but they cannot take any of the players. The VFA were losing three of their ten clubs and legal action was assumed to be imminent. However, in December 1924, the VFA had decided to admit Coburg into their ranks for the 1925 season, taking them from the Junior Football League, which was effectively the VFL's second 18 competition. The VFA were also in discussions with the potential public service team. For those two reasons, the VFL considered that the agreement between the two organisations had already been breached by the VFA. Adding to the confusion, a VFA delegate noted that the Arden Street ground, home of North Melbourne, had been granted by the state government to the VFA. You can get more on this issue from episode 25 for season 1921. How was North Melbourne to play without a home ground? At an emergency meeting of the VFA on the following Monday evening, delegates of the three rebel clubs denied unreservedly that there had been any communication with the VFL on the issue of admittance. In a meeting that was noted as being conducted in a calm 
and polite manner, the Herald did note, particular significance was attached to what the delegates from the three clubs left unsaid. Fortunately for each of the clubs, their local councils had been in discussion with the VFL, but of course not with any engagement of the VFA club committees. A sense of the emotions and the tensions of the situation can be drawn from the repeated comparisons of the clearance agreement between the VFL and the VFA to, quote, a scrap of paper, unquote. This is a phrase that was made infamous because it referred to the treaty that guaranteed Belgium's neutrality and was one of the factors that led Britain entering into World War I when Germany invaded Belgium. An honourable agreement between rival football bodies may not be the same as an international treaty, but feelings were running hot. Within the week, the three clubs had resigned from the VFA and formally joined the VFL. The league claimed that North Melbourne had every right to play VFL games at Arden Street, but it was probable that there would be no objection to allowing the VFA to continue to play their finals at the ground as they had done for many seasons, provided North had finished their home games. As to player clearances, the Herald reported a league official explaining that because the three clubs were now VFL clubs, players would not need a clearance. If any of these players wanted to join an association club, they would need a clearance from the league. A clever interpretation on what seemed a significant barrier. The VFA, of course, might have a different view and were likely getting legal advice. While the supporters of the clubs that had been promoted were happy, there were others who thought the VFL were just too concerned with finance. Towards the end of January, the Argus published a more detailed analysis of the thinking behind the league's decision. While there was advice that the agreement with the VFA was focused on movement of players, and not clubs, and that once a club was in the VFL, the issue of clearances was removed, there was also a feeling that the agreement was morally binding, if not strictly legally binding. But once the association brought Coburg into their ranks, it was the VFA that had destroyed the agreement. The next hurdle was the challenge of adjusting recruiting districts if either Footscray or North Melbourne were added as the 10th club. But Reginald Hunt, Carlton's secretary and delegate at the league, saw a way through the maze which would strengthen the league and limit any retaliation from the VFA and see a repeat of the costly transfers that were occurring before the clearance agreement was implemented. Rather than just admitting one club for a 10-team competition, why not take three clubs? This would strengthen the league and leave the VFA with weaker clubs who would not be able to attract VFL players in a bidding war. He also proposed clubs stick to the municipal boundaries until the district scheme could be fully revised. And why these three clubs when so many had been applying? North and Footscray were the strongest two teams in the VFA, having won eight out of the last ten premierships between them. And Hawthorne provided a club further out in the eastern suburbs, with a ground that was easily accessible and, at the time, considered to have good facilities. Some might consider this approach Machiavellian, or perhaps it was just clear-sighted and practical from a VFL perspective. But the VFA clearly would not agree, and at the start of February, they said they would fight to the last penny to protect their rights.
Jack Worrell, the first man appointed as a coach in the VFL and winner of three premierships at Carlton and two at Essendon, made his thoughts clear in a column in the Australasian in April. He criticised the league for its unsportsmanlike behaviour and the rape of three association clubs was as shameless as it was unfair. While there were those critical of the league, Kikero and the Herald made the obvious point that nearly every club in their VFA had been making approaches to join the VFL and there should be no surprise that this had eventually occurred. Adding to the confusion of how football in 1925 would unfold was a new proposal from a company called Melbourne Carnivals to create two new teams to include in the VFA playing their games at the Motodome on land near the MCG where today you would find Amy Park or the rectangular football stadium if you play by ABC rules. The revolutionary proposal from Melbourne Carnivals was to create separate Richmond and Melbourne association teams. One would play home games under lights on Saturday and one on Monday evenings. A stunning proposal that would offer players £5 per week to join the new clubs. It was a dramatic proposal, with two privately owned teams playing under lights. A preview of the types of actions taken by the likes of Edelston and Scase more than 60 years later, and it would have brought night football forward by decades. But, spoiler alert, it did not happen. While the ambitious scheme by Melbourne Carnivals to expand the VFA seemed to evaporate within a couple of weeks, the league was still keen to use the Motodome, or, more accurately, stop the VFA or any other organisation or any other code from getting access to such a well-situated ground. The next proposal to be floated was that Geelong would play all of their away games at the Motodome. There was some interest in this option, but... It didn't happen either. And while we can look back at 1925 knowing that 12 clubs would end up playing in the VFL in their usual home grounds, for the supporters and the administrators, the opening months of the year were full of drama, uncertainty, potential legal challenges, and there were still two and a half months to go before the season started. At the end of February, the fixture was announced, with the additional three clubs, but still only a 17-round season which meant that not every club could play each other twice. After the first 11 games, there was effectively two sections created for the final six games of the season, and with no surprise at all, the unloved round-robin final series was discarded after one year, and the amended Argus finals process returned as it had been since 1907. As the start of the season approached, the VFA had yet to pull the trigger on their legal action. Their position was that they were waiting until the dissident clubs had played a game in the VFL. But despite the VFL's assertion that the players did not need to get a clearance from the VFA, given that the clubs were now in the VFL, they were not ready to forgive players that had previously left the VFL to play in the VFA without a clearance. This meant that Footscray were told Alex Eason, who left Geelong in 1922 to coach Footscray, as well as Ford, O'Brien and Stevenson, were still under disqualification by the VFL, though they were free to play in the association until their three-year ban was lifted. So Footscray would be moving into the VFL without four of their best players. Footscray got more bad news when they requested their premiership medals from the VFA. Their letter was reviewed at an early April meeting 
and the VFA decided that there was no record of any commitment to provide the medals to the Premiers. Footscray had already received their Premiership caps, and that's all they were getting. I don't think the remaining VFA delegates were too keen to do anything for the now VFL club. In the week before the season started, news broke that the VFA would abandon their legal case. The stated reason being that the players who had taken to the field would be banned from playing VFA football for three years, and this was sufficient punishment. Thus, the legal threat from the VFA ended not with a bang, but a whimper. The VFA would play with an eight-team competition, with Coburg making up one additional club after the loss of Footscray, Hawthorne and North. The association would expand again in 1926 and continue for decades, but the resentment and bitterness between the oldest football competition in Victoria and the more successful breakaway VFL would continue for decades. On more football-related matters, the pre-season had seen significant angst about the new out-of-bounds rule adopted by the Australian Football Council, awarding a free kick against the team that touched the ball before it went out of bounds, a rule opposed by the majority in the league. The VFL were in an awkward position. They had helped to establish the Australian Football Council to promote Australian football and confirmed that the council was the authority for a uniform set of rules for the game across the nation. But now the VFL was being forced to adopt a rule it did not want. There was talk about leaving the council, but in the end the VFL did adopt the new rule. And once the practice matches had been completed, people began to see that the game was looking better. Ugly, often brutal shepherding in the ruck at ball-ins was eliminated because there were no ball-ins. And by creating more risk in kicking towards the boundary, the game saw more attractive play towards what we would now call the centre corridor. The other rule change focused on handball. There had been growing concern that too many players were throwing the ball under the guise of scooping it along with a gentle tap of the hand. And umpires were not enforcing the ban on throwing. Now, a handball had to involve punching the ball with a fist. On the coaching front, there had been an extraordinary amount of movement. Carlton had tried to appoint Jim Caldwell as coach, but South would not clear him, so instead they went for their long-time defender and 1924 captain, Paddy O'Brien. But when the players voted on a captain, they chose Morris Beasy, which won't cause any problems, will it? At Essendon, dual premiership captain coach Sid Baker had retired, and Frank Maher stepped into that role. Down at Geelong, Lloyd Hager had moved to Tasmania after being offered a significant incentive, and Cliff Raken became the captain coach. Some might have thought that a player who'd stood down from the 1923 semi-final because the selection committee had dropped Bert Raken, his brother, would not be entrusted with such a leadership role. But the Cats were sure they had the right man for the job. Hawthorne, making their debut in the VFL, chose Alec Hall, whose last coaching role was in 1913, when he finished his second stint at Melbourne. Twelve years out of the job, but he did have seven years coaching experience, including a year at Richmond. Melbourne lost Gordon Rattray after just one season as a non-playing coach and part-time Fitzroy player, and Albert Chadwick became their captain coach. North Melbourne had tried to get Gordon Rattray to be their coach, but Fitzroy would not clear him to North either, and so they recruited St Kilda's captain coach, Wellsleek, to be their inaugural VFL captain coach. Footscray had Con McCarthy, the former Collingwood Premiership captain, as their captain coach, and he retained his position with the club as they started their VFL era. 
Fitzroy appointed former player Chris Lethbridge as a non-playing coach to replace Vic Belcher. St Kilda, having lost Wells Eek to North, appointed former Carlton Premiership player and coach and former Richmond coach Norman Clark. A few of the established VFL teams did manage to hang on to their coaches while all this movement was going on. Richmond would continue with Dan Minogue as captain coach. At South, Charlie Pannon would still be a non-playing coach, giving Collingwood's a refusal to provide a clearance. And, talking of Collingwood, the essence of coaching stability, Jock McHale entered his 14th season with plenty more to come. After all the turmoil of the months leading up to the start of the season, the reality was people wanted to see the game and season previews were enthusiastic with records expected to be broken. There was more coverage in the various papers, membership sales were ahead of previous seasons and, as happens every season, no matter the era, supporters were confident that their team had good prospects of taking the premiership or at least putting up a good effort. In the opening round on Saturday the 2nd of May, Essendon unfurled their premiership flag in front of Collingwood and surely all the bitterness at Essendon at the end of the 1924 season was forgotten. Except Tom Fitzmaurice had been true to his word of not playing with the club again and was awaiting his clearance to play in Geelong where he now lived. Essendon were well in control at half-time but Collingwood surged back in the third quarter, giving the Dons a shock. But unlike the 1924 season opener, Collingwood were not able to spoil Essendon's round one party and the Dons had a comfortable four-goal win. North Melbourne surprised many by getting their first win in the VFL, beating Geelong at the Corio Oval. Geelong had been close to making the finals as last season and did not expect to lose at home to the newcomers. Richmond had a comfortable win over Hawthorne, who, to be fair, were not one of the strongest teams of the VFA, and Footscray were competitive in their visit to the Brunswick Street Oval, but Fitzroy led all day and held on by nine points. In other games, Melbourne had an easy win over St Kilda, and South were not troubled by Carlton. Reviews of the opening round focused on the fast and attractive play, driven by the new tactics adopted because of the controversial new out-of-bounds free-kick rule. As noted in the Argus, players seem to have discovered the shortest way to the goal was by a direct line, and with no ugly scuffling on the boundary line, the use of the elbow was becoming a lost art. The warm greetings to the new clubs was also noted, with spectators, players and club officials of the established VFL clubs making a special effort to welcome the three newcomers. By the end of round six, a third of the way through the season, the Premiership ladder was showing some clear divisions. Fitzroy, Geelong and Essendon all had five wins, with the Maroons on top by percentage. Melbourne were also having an improved season, with four wins and a draw against Richmond. Collingwood were in the mix with four wins, and North Melbourne were the best performed of the newcomers with two wins, the opening game against Geelong, and a close win over Hawthorne. And even Hawthorne had a win against fellow newcomer Footscray. But at the bottom of the table was a troubled Carlton. The once mighty Blues had only managed one victory over Hawthorne, but they had been poor in most games. After round two, their captain, Morris Beasy, resigned the position. He lived in Donnelly in central Victoria and only travelled down to Melbourne on Fridays, hence not attending any of the club's training sessions. The players elected Ray Brew, aged just 22, to replace him. Before round four, 
They then sacked Paddy O'Brien as coach and asked Ray Brew to take over as playing coach, having just become captain, while they looked for another coach. Jim Caldwell, the former South Melbourne Premiership captain coach, was appointed, which meant that he had to travel back from Perth where he'd been playing coach for the last two seasons. A disappointing result for Paddy O'Brien, who was blamed for the Blues' poor performance. He would only play two more games in 1925 before moving to Footscray the following season. Not a good start to the season for Carlton, a club that was used to success. If we skip forward to the end of round 12, two-thirds of the way through the season, Geelong had continued their winning streak under new captain coach Cliff Rankin. 11 wins in a row since their shock loss to North Melbourne in the opening of the season. Melbourne were having a strong year after finishing second bottom the previous season. Now they were second from the top, with nine wins and a draw, just ahead of Collingwood and Essendon. Fitzroy had dropped off the pace, with just two wins from the last six games. Carlton's season had improved with four wins, three against a new trio of clubs and a win against Richmond. Footscray were third last with three wins just above North, also with three wins, and Hawthorne had one win so far. Life in the VFL was proving a bit tougher than the VFA. The new out-of-bounds rule had contributed to a faster, higher scoring game. Last season, it was noted when a team kicked more than 100 points, but now this was common. In round five, Carlton kicked what would have once been a respectable 10 goals, 12, 72 points. But Geelong beat them by 12 goals, 22 goals, 12 behinds, 144. Times were changing. In round 10, Geelong got off to a flying start in their game against South Melbourne, kicking 11 goals, 4, while holding South scoreless in the first quarter. The round 12 game at Arden Street between North and Geelong was one of the roughest seen for many years. Six players were reported on 17 charges, and many more could have been added. One of the Geelong players was hit by a large stone thrown from the crowd as he left the ground. It was a nasty affair. There had been rumours on the Friday before the game that trouble was brewing, and the rumours proved true. Following the game, the Geelong advertiser reported that Eric Fleming, a Geelong player, had received a letter warning that North players were out to injure him. Geelong officials were so incensed that they declined the half-time refreshments with the North Melbourne hosts, and the president of Geelong requested that the North Melbourne president intervene in the half-time break to prevent a recurrence of the rough play seen in the second quarter. It was to no avail. In the last quarter, Geelong's captain coach was knocked unconscious and had to be carried from the ground. North's Fred Rutley was banned for life, and Bill Russ was suspended for five games, and Harold Johnson was found guilty of attempted kicking, but not suspended. Geelong's Arthur Thomas and Stan Coughlin were both suspended for 26 weeks, a decision that outraged Cat supporters. Public meetings were held, letters sent, and protests made, but it was to no effect. Thomas would not play again, but Coughlin did return in 1927 and played six more seasons. I wonder how he felt when he played games against North Melbourne. On a more positive note, in round 14, Melbourne's Harry Davy kicked 13 goals against Carlton, which included eight in the last quarter. With two rounds remaining, the experts were making their predictions on who would make it to the finals. Jumbo Charland in the Sporting Globe identified Geelong as a certainty, Melbourne as almost certain, 
but then it was up to Collingwood, Fitzroy and Essendon. With a superior percentage, Fitzroy just had to win their last two games. In round 16, Essendon beat Richmond to secure their top four spot, and in the pressure game between Collingwood and Fitzroy, it was the Magpies who won, keeping their finals hopes alive. Going into the final round, Fitzroy and Collingwood both had 11 wins, but Fitzroy had a break of 4% on the Magpies. The Maroons were playing Carlton, five spots below them on the ladder after a season that the Blues would prefer to forget. Collingwood had to go to South Melbourne, who were a spot above Carlton. Any normal win should get Fitzroy into the finals, surely. But it was an odd end to the season. Fitzroy could just not get on top of Carlton. And to make matters worse, they could not kick straight. When the scoreboards were checked at three-quarter time, Fitzroy were beating Carlton, but more importantly, still ahead of Carlton in the race for the final four, but only by one percentage point. Eventually they won. Seven goals, 24 behinds, 66 to nine goals, 10, 64. So they might have left the ground thinking that they were in the finals. But then the news arrived from the Lakeside Oval. The Magpies had made every effort to win their game by scoring as many goals as they could and keeping South to as low a score as possible. Collingwood, 14 goals, 11.95 to South, just four goals, 6.30 meant that once the pencils and paper arithmetic were complete, Collingwood's percentage was up by 6, while Fitzroy's percentage fell. Both teams finished with 12 wins, but Collingwood snuck past the Maroons with 1.4% higher percentage. If Fitzroy had kicked straight against Carlton, they would have been playing in the finals. As it was, Geelong were clear on top of it with the right of challenge if required. The first semi-final between 2nd place Essendon and 4th place Collingwood took place on Saturday the 19th of September at the MCG. In the Friday preview in the Herald, Kikoro produced a detailed graphic showing where each of the two teams had been on the ladder throughout the season. Essendon had been in the top four all year, locking in second spot over the last two rounds. Collingwood had a poor start to the season, only reaching fourth at the end of June, and, despite spending a couple of weeks at second spot in early August, they then dropped out of the four and looked destined to miss the finals until that remarkable final round win over South Melbourne. Newspapers were becoming much more sophisticated in how they presented information to supporters in the mid-1920s, compared to the very text-focused newspapers of earlier decades. In the two earlier games between the clubs, Essendon had a four-goal win after a hard-fought game at Windy Hill, but in the return game at Victoria Park, the Dons were blown away, losing by more than 11 goals. Kikoro tipped the Magpies to win, saying Collingwood had timed their run into finals form. And the panel of expert opinions, consisting of club captains, delegates, coaches and committee men from across the league, were also mostly in favour of Collingwood. Norm Clark, former Carlton Premiership player and coach, now coaching St Kilda, thought Essendon were stale and had too many old players. 60,000 people were at the MCG the return to the traditional final system being welcomed by all. While it had not yet rained, the league took the precaution of postponing the second 18 semi-final curtain raiser, given several dark patches on the ground and some threatening clouds, while this meant that early arrivals had a long wait with nothing to see until the 3pm start, it seems there was not too much grumbling. 
The crowd got so large that all around the oval, hundreds of boys were sitting between the boundary line and the fence, which did cause the game to be held up at one point to clear the lads away from the goals at the punt road end. Essendon won the toss and kicked with the breeze, and it was a cracking opening quarter, with the teams playing attacking football and goals being scored at both ends of the ground. There was a moment of controversy when Collingwood scored their fourth goal, with many from Essendon claiming the ball had hit the post. But the umpire's decision was final, and the goal stayed. The bell rang as Essendon were surging forward again, and the scores stood at Essendon, seven points in front, five goals, two, 32, to Collingwood, four goals, one behind, 25. The game became tighter in the second and third quarters. Collingwood did get to a 17-point lead in the third quarter, and with the opportunity to have the win in the final, but a Collingwood player kicked the ball the wrong way. Essendon scored, and they got onto a roll. Players and supporters both needed a rest at three-quarter time. Essendon were just in front, 9 goals 6 to Collingwood's 9 goals 4, but the Magpies would have the win in the final quarter. The Dons continued to put pressure on and scored against the wind. It took until the 22nd minute mark for Collingwood to snatch back the lead by four points. Then Gordon Coventry, building his name in this early part of his career, took a fingertip mark and scored the ceiling goal. In the modern era, he would have been substituted out of the game after a heavy knock early in the game left him dazed and confused. At half-time, he lay down in the entire break and it was reported that he did not know where he was. Different times and a safer game today. It had been a terrific semi-final and Collingwood had shown that their last-minute jump into the final four was not a fluke. Essendon would not defend their back-to-back premierships. Their season was over. The second semi-final saw top-of-the-table Geelong take on third-place Melbourne. It had been a fine season for the Futures, as they were known at the time. After just missing the wooden spoon in 1924, when they won the last game of the season, they had had their most successful season for many years, with 12 wins getting them to third place. Excitement was building that the old club could match the effort of the 1900 Melbourne team to bring home a premiership. But they had to face Geelong, a club as old as Melbourne, and one that had had much success in the old VFA, but were yet to win a VFL premiership. In fact, despite making the finals seven times, they had actually not won a final since the first round robin season back in 1897, the very first year of the VFL when they did meet Melbourne at the Brunswick Street Oval. But for football-crazed Geelong, a city that had arranged for five special trains to bring supporters to the MCG, it was more recent form that counted. In their only game in the 1925 season, Geelong, at the Corio Oval, had won by four goals. In an odd coincidence, Geelong and Melbourne had both been beaten by North Melbourne. So while that new team to the VFL had finished ninth on the ladder, two of its wins were against fine quality teams. Melbourne had the home ground advantage and Geelong had not seen the MCG this season. But Kikero in Friday's Herald tipped Geelong in a close game and the panel of experts assembled by the Herald were heavily in Geelong's favour. 51,000 people were at the second semi-final. Down on the first semi, but perhaps Geelong playing reduced the numbers of locals at the ground. 
In another sign of the changing times, the parking area of the ground was noted as being very popular with motorists, with an estimated 1,150 cars parked, raising approximately £50 for the Melbourne City Council. While cars had not become universal, they were becoming more popular. Melbourne kicked with the wind in the first quarter and started with an attacking style from the very first bounce, using pace to break up Geelong's more clinical game style. The home team had their first goal within two minutes and after a flurry of activity, mainly in their forward line, had three goals six in the first 15 minutes, before Geelong had even scored. If Melbourne had been more accurate, they might have won the game before the Cats had even started. Any Geelong supporter who had got to the ground late may have been regretting the effort made to get to the MCG. By the end of the first quarter, Melbourne had a good lead, but would it be enough if Geelong could get their system going? Melbourne, 3 goals 9, 27 to Geelong, 1 goal 1, 7. The crowd was quiet. Melbourne supporters perhaps not daring to hope, and Geelong barrackers wondering what had happened to their club that had dominated so many games this season. Within 90 seconds of the start of the second quarter, Geelong got their second goal and hopes rose, only to sink when Melbourne got two more. And for the remainder of the game, it was a fairly even affair, but that initial advantage in the frantic first 15 minutes of the game was going to be enough to give Melbourne an upset win and condemn Geelong to their seventh semi-final loss since 1901. Final scores were Melbourne 14 goals 17, 101, to Geelong 13 goals 8, 86. But unlike previous years, Geelong had the right of challenge, so they could sit back and watch Melbourne take on Collingwood in the final, knowing they would play the winner in the grand final. Their premiership hopes were still alive. On the Wednesday night before the final, the VFL Permits and Umpires Committee met and counted the votes cast by the umpires for the Brownlow Medal, still reported in most of the press as a Best and Fairest award. Colin Watson of St Kilda had played 15 out of 17 games, missing two due to injury, but polled in nine games to win the award, ahead of last year's winner, Kaji Greaves, who received seven votes. Only one vote per game at this point. Watson played in the centre, on the wing and a half-back flank throughout his career, and was considered one of the best of his era. Two midfielders winning the first two Brownlows. Will it create a trend? In a move that stunned the Saints, Colin Watson then took a job as the coach of Thorwell in 1926. St Kilda refused to clear him to play, so he stood down for a year, right after winning the Brownlow. The following year, he wanted to play for Maryborough, and the VFL suspended the affiliation of the entire Ballarat League for letting him play without a clearance. He did eventually return to the VFL and the Saints in 1933, at the age of 33, as captain and one of the team's best players. He even made the state team in his first year back. A Brownlow medalist with a career unlike most. The final, or as the Argus was now calling it, the preliminary final, was between Collingwood and Melbourne and attracted 50,000 people. Melbourne were known for their speed, while the Magpies had strength and a focus on systematic football. Collingwood were more regular finalists. Melbourne had last played in finals in 1915, and their only premiership success had been back in 1901. Collingwood had won both games between the clubs in the season, 
but each team was playing good football at the business end of the season, so each expected to win. Kikero, in his preview in the Herald, had a bit each way, with Melbourne winning if it was an open game, but leaning to Collingwood if it was a hard, close battling game. The experts panel was also split fairly evenly between the two clubs. The other major development was the news that this game was the first to be broadcast on the wireless. While radio stations had given score updates, this was to have a full description. Details aren't 100% clear, but one newspaper article from the Geelong mentions that the club was endeavouring to get a wireless receiving set at the Geelong home ground so that players who would be there for some extra training could keep in touch with the incidents and scores which were to be broadcast. Jumbo Sharland, a former Geelong player and now established sports journalist, was the inaugural commentator. After all the anticipation, the game failed to deliver. As described by Forward in The Age, it was a rough, uninteresting contest, which saw Melbourne lose by 37 points, kicking one of their lowest scores for the season. They were undermanned, with three of their key players suffering injuries during the game, throwing the team out of balance, and they could not recapture the form of the previous week. Collingwood were on a mission. They were on top all over the ground and had the dominant forward on the field, Gordon Coventry, kicking five goals. Collingwood would take on Geelong for the 1925 Premiership on the 10th of October. Charles Tyson was the Magpies' captain. Although born in Victoria, he'd grown up in Kalgoorlie. He returned to Victoria and debuted with Collingwood in 1920 and played most of his career in the halfback flank. He was appointed captain in 1924 and he would leave the club until 1926, leaving the club in controversial circumstances that we will deal with next episode. He played three seasons for North, the last two in 1927 and 28 as captain coach, but then had a falling out with this club as well. He had been injured playing in a midweek competition, and the North's administration were not impressed. So Tyson resigned and got a clearance before the end of June 1929 to play for Yarraville in the VFA. The Collingwood coach was, of course, Jock McHale. His decades-long career was not even halfway done, and he was about to begin a remarkable run of successive grand finals, which we will explore in the coming episodes. In May 1925, the Sporting Globe published a feature on McHale. He paid tribute to Dick Condon, a Collingwood player with a fine football brain, but a fiery temper. If you don't know about him, listen to episode 4, the 1900 season, where Condon got a lifetime ban for abusing an umpire, later rescinded. It is only one instance where temper took over from the football brilliance, but McHale was a much calmer man and coach. While the specifics of his training methods would not be in favour today, his advice on the more important elements of leadership and player management are as true now as they were then. He focused on understanding each player's individual temperament. McHale said, A moody man does not want bullying. He wants to be built up in hope. And quiet, well-spoken words of encouragement will often make him a force to be reckoned with. And today we might talk about Gen X or Y or Z or millennial players and how players of today are different. But I reckon any of today's successful coaches would follow a similar philosophy of understanding each player's individual temperament. Geelong was led by first-year captain coach Cliff Rankin. He had been a successful player since his schoolboy days 
and first played for Geelong in 1915 before enlisting in the army, where he served as a gunner in France. He played for the Australian Imperial Forces rugby union team that defeated the New Zealand All Blacks in a game played in England shortly after the armistice was signed. His VFL career resumed at the end of the 1919 season, where he was able to play in the last five games. But his first full season was in 1920, five years after his debut, where he kicked 48 goals. Rankin would coach Geelong for three years, until the end of the 1927 season, and his last season as player was 1928, after 153 games. He was a regular state player and captain Victoria in 1926. And while we are familiar with father-son pairings in football, Cliff Franken had a great-grandson, Gary O'Donnell, who continued the family football tradition, albeit at a different club in a different era, playing 243 games with Essendon, including two seasons where he too was captain. The umpire for the 1925 Grand Final was Jack McMurray Sr. for his second Grand Final, following on from 1921. He had started umpiring as a junior in the South Suburban competition before debuting in the VFA in 1913, where he was awarded the 1914 Grand Final. When the VFA went into recess during World War I, he moved to the VFL. He would be the first VFL umpire to reach 300 senior games, gaining the respect of players across the league before finally retiring in 1936. His son, Jack Jr., would make his debut as a VFL umpire five years later in 1941 and chalk up 216 games. 519 games umpired in the one family is a remarkable record. Geelong had won the first game played between these two clubs by three points at Victoria Park and again by nine points at the Correo Oval. Two wins, but neither was a dominating victory. Collingwood were experienced finals campaigners and their last grand final was in 1922. But the only player in Geelong's team with grand final experience was Tom Fitzmaurice, who had won premierships in the 1923 grand final and the 1924 round robin at Essendon before leaving in controversial circumstances. And he now hoped to gain his third premiership in a row, this time with Geelong. There were crowds watching training at both clubs. Collingwood supporters were thrilled to see Dick Lee out on the ground, slotting goals with his dependable kicking style. Rumours abounded that he might be a surprise selection if there were injuries, but it came to nothing, and Collingwood selected the same 18 that had defeated Melbourne. Geelong made two changes from their side that had lost to Melbourne two weeks earlier. John Jones and Frank Mockridge were the unlucky players. Mockridge would get to play in the 1931 Grand Final, while Jones would play his last season in 1926. Into the team came Dave Ferguson, selected in the back pocket, and Ken Lay on the halfback flank. Both were regulars throughout the season. Ferguson had played in all 17 home and away games before missing the first semi-final, and Lay had played most of the year before being injured in round 15 against Collingwood. Kikoro tipped Collingwood to win while the expert panel was evenly divided between the two clubs, and the cartoon on the back page of the Herald had the Geelong black cat climbing a tree, hoping to upset the magpie nest to take the premiership flag. In Geelong, factories, businesses and shops had all worked extra time during the week in order to have Saturday off so they could board one of the many special trains heading to Melbourne, 
and a record crowd of 64,288 made their way into the ground, equivalent to 7% of Melbourne's total population, crowded together to watch one game of football. The curtain raiser was a grand final between Collingwood and Fitzroy's second 18. On the Thursday night before the game, several Fitzroy players had been attacked by a gang of larrikins, said to be two enthusiastic supporters of the Collingwood team. One player was knocked senseless and missed the grand final, while the four other injured players took to the field. Whether it would motivate them further was not revealed. But the match reports did describe several fights during the second quarter, and several players were reported, two for kicking each other. Collingwood won the second 18 premiership by 14 points. It was time for the VFL grand final. Geelong, who were the crowd favourites, never having won a VFL premiership, and their last success was back in the VFA in 1886, 39 long years back when football was a very different game to what was played in 1925. Cliff Franken won the toss and chose the punt road end to kick with the wind in the first quarter. As soon as the ball was bounced, there was an incident that unfortunately has occurred in a number of grand finals. Collingwood's halfback flanker, Ernie Wilson, was belted in the mouth by a clenched fist that laid him to the ground, and as he got up again, he was crunched again by the same player. Newspaper reports don't say who the player was, but Jack Worrell, writing in the Australasian, was outraged. However, many supporters in the stands cheered, which dismayed Worrell even more. Perhaps Wilson was a victim of his own reputation. Many supporters considered him something of a hitman, only interested in hurting opponents. Back with the football, it was Cliff Rankin that scored the first goal of the game after five minutes of rapid play. Soon afterwards, Gordon Coventry took a strong mark in range, but missed his first shot at goal. A burst of clever passing by the Geelong players between Kaji Reeves, Arthur Grayson and Lloyd Hager was topped off by a kick to Cliff Rankin, who scored the second goal of the game. As captain coach, he was leading his team by example and stamping his authority on the game early in the opening stanza. But Collingwood had been doing much of the attacking, only to be let down by inaccurate kicking into the breeze. As the quarter went on, goals to Reynolds, Webb and Frank Murphy had the Magpies two points up, and their supporters had found their voice. Geelong might have been the sentimental favourite, but Collingwood cared little for sentiment. At the end of the first quarter, Geelong had regained the lead with straight shooting, but was it enough? Geelong 3 goals 2-20, leading Collingwood 2 goals 5-17. Collingwood had been wasteful in front of goal. Gordon Coventry, their normally reliable forward, kicking three behinds. The Magpie supporters were excited. Their team had stood up to the latter leaders and now they had the win to give them the advantage in the second quarter. But just three minutes after the bell rang, it was Geelong's half-forward flanker Jack Chambers taking a long snapshot that brought up two flags. Geelong were building their lead. It was Geelong playing clean football while the Magpies fumbled. Geelong were passing accurately, building up chains of possession, while Collingwood were making mistakes. And the goals kept coming from the boys from Correo Oval. Cliff Franken, playing a dominant game, scored his third when he moved past the Magpie defenders and snapped truly. All those barrackers that had piled into special trains from Geelong were cheering and yelling encouragement to their team. When the bell sounded for a well-deserved half-time rest, 
The scoreboard had the Cats with a 17-point lead, Geelong 7 goals 8-50 to Collingwood 4 goals 9-33. But the game was only halfway done, and Collingwood were experienced finals campaigners, led by a coach who knew what it took to win a grand final. Magpie supporters were nervous, but still hopeful that their boys would come out the stronger team in the next two quarters. The wind was stronger in the third quarter, and Geelong dominated for the early part of the game, but the straight kicking of the first half had fallen away. After another series of delightful passes, Cliff Rankin was taking another shot at goal, and he did not waste the opportunity, scoring the Cats' eighth major. Collingwood knew they had to do something now, or the game was gone and George Beasley rose to the occasion, stopping two threatening Geelong attacks, and then, as the ball moved forward from the Magpies, forward pocket Reg Barker was given a free kick close to the boundary line. Despite the tight angle, his kick was straight, and a much-needed goal. Just a minute later, the Magpie rover Reynolds Webb swooped on a loose ball, twisted, turned, and with a spinning kick over his shoulder, scored another goal to create some much-needed momentum for Collingwood. The gap was now only 13 points. But the next goal went to Cliff Rankin, and while Collingwood continued to attack, they could not score a goal. Gordon Coventry was having a horror game, and missed shots that he would get almost any other day. With moments to go before the end of the quarter, wingman Edward Stevenson kicked a high flyer that went through the middle, giving Geelong a 25-point lead. Geelong 10 goals 13, 73, to Collingwood. Six goals, 12, 48. But still, Geelong supporters were nervous, wondering if they had done enough. And Magpie Barrackers were hopeful that they could come home in a rush. One quarter to go, and the Premiership still had to be won. Collingwood did start the last quarter with a rush. In four minutes, they dominated the attack and kicked the all-important opening goal. The gap was down to three goals. Moments later, at the six-minute mark, Collingwood Lee Stainsby, playing in his first season of VFL football, kicked another goal. The gap was down to 12 points, and there was plenty of time left in the game. Now it was Collingwood playing with confidence and stringing passes together, which found Gordon Coventry in front and in range. Surely the champion full forward would finish the job. But the yips, or the horror game, or whatever you want to call it, struck again, and the ball went out of bounds, giving a relieved Geelong a free kick. The ball moved up and down the ground freely, and shots were taken, but goals weren't kicked. The post was hit by Collingwood's Jim Lawn, amongst other misses by teammates and opponents. But finally, it was Collingwood captain Charlie Tyson, normally a defender, who used a long kick to give Collingwood their ninth goal and reduce the margin to eight points. Geelong had been the number one team all season, had led the grand final from the start of the match, and yet in the last moments of the final quarter, it seemed that Collingwood might snatch the premiership away. The Cats scrambled another couple of points, but still could not seal the game. Collingwood's Frank Murphy had the ball on the wing. In front of him, three Collingwood forwards, and just Dave Ferguson, the lone Geelong defender. The kick sailed into the forward line, and Ferguson ran to the ball but fell over. Yet somehow, while flat on his back, he took the mark, stopping the last Collingwood attack. It was, as Old Boy in the Argus said, dramatic and spectacular and most timely. It gave Geelong the break they needed, and the bell would soon ring to award Geelong their first VFL Premiership. Geelong, 10 goals, 19 behind, 79, 
to a gallant Collingwood on 9 goals 15-69. Cliff Rankin had kicked 5 goals and 7 behinds for Geelong. Gordon Coventry, playing on Dave Ferguson, who was brought back into the Geelong team after missing the semi-final, was held goalless in a grand final for the only time in his career. It was also the first time in 17 games that he had not scored a goal, registering seven behinds in a game that might have haunted him. And maybe the Geelong selectors gave themselves a pat on the back as they watched Ferguson taking that possibly premiership-saving mark in the dying moments of the game. The Geelong change rooms were crowded and jubilant, and the appropriate speeches were given and acknowledgements made by Collingwood and Geelong officials. And after an ovation given to David Hickenbotham, who had been the Geelong captain of their last premiership team, he was happy to hand over the crown that he had worn for the last 39 years. But the real celebrations were going to happen at the other end of the railway track. Supporters in Geelong had been listening to the game on their radios on 3LO in houses that had wireless sets or in the streets where wireless depots had been set up where hundreds of people would crowd around the speakers. Hotels had done a roaring trade by making sure that they had wireless sets and even the Geelong Hospital had radio broadcasts going through two wards. At Cadinia Park, the Junior Association was playing their final match but the people in the grandstand were paying more attention to the game coming through the wireless set than the one in front of them. And when the sentence finally came through that Geelong had won, cheers were heard all over the city. Nothing more could be heard from the announcer until the sentence, It will be a great night in Geelong tonight. And indeed it would. Thousands gathered at the railway stations. A crowd swelled by every special train that returned from Melbourne. Then, the moment they'd been waiting for, the train with the Premiership players whistling from North Geelong, and then joined by all the other trains in the railway yards. Detonators were let off on the tracks, and the crowd joined in the cacophony of noise. Players were carried to cars and paraded to the town hall, while Cliff Rankin was carried shoulder-high the whole way by the crowd. There were speeches and toasts and a party that went all night for some. In the weeks after the grand final, there was a visit to Melbourne by the president of the Western Australian Football League in preparation for an Australian Football Council meeting. In an interview, he recommended that a board of directors be appointed to run football leagues, replacing club delegates who would always be battling club interests. It would only be another six decades and multiple consultants' reports before the VFL clubs finally relinquished control of the VFL in 1985. And... While on administration matters, the VFL's third president, Sir Baldwin Spencer, made it known in December that he would be resigning. After taking on the role in 1918, the expansion of the league in 1925 had created more meetings and additional duties that he was not able to attend to the work as he would like. A new president would be appointed in 1926. Whether the VFL would ever have another president, or now chairman, who was also an art critic, biologist, university lecturer, museum director, conservationist and anthropologist, who worked amongst Indigenous people of the Northern Territory, remains to be seen. So that was season 1925. The VFL finally grasped the nettle of expansion from 9 teams to 12. The new out-of-bounds rule had actually been a success, contributing to faster, higher scoring games, and Geelong had their breakthrough premiership, 
a first in the VFL and their first for 39 years. Now, every foundation club and Richmond had at least one premiership, except for St Kilda. But surely, their reward would be coming soon? The three new teams had won some games, but ended up at the bottom of the ladder. They were going to find VFL football a tougher assignment than VFA. So join me next time as we explore the 30th season of the VFL in 1926. If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. If you have questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.au website or Facebook or Twitter for more Grand Final History. Thank you.